It tickles me because, like, Campari comes along and they, well, you need media training, you need this. And it's like, okay, I've been doing this forever. I go to media training and they're like, he don't need this. <laughs> <laughs> This is episode 189 of Bourbon Pursuit, and we're talking to Eddie Russell of Wild Turkey. But before we do that, we actually have just a, a just a tiny bit of news. It's actually kind of uncanny about it. But a few things to hit on. Balcones out of Texas has released their first ever year-round straight bourbon whiskey. It's a Texas pot-stilled bourbon. That may be sound weird coming from Bourbon Pursuit. However, we've had it. It's actually really good. And this guy should be available starting March 2nd. Ryan and I went live this week to taste test some Kings County bourbon on Facebook and Instagram Live. If you didn't catch it, that means you need to follow us, maybe just a little bit closer. Well, maybe not, but we didn't really advertise it, so it really wasn't a surprise. But however, this one is not a surprise. So mark your calendars for March 1st at 4 p.m. Eastern. I want to see you all at Down One Bourbon Bar in Louisville, Kentucky. We're going to be doing our first ever live stream of the podcast, and you can be there to watch it in person. We're going to be joined by Chris Morris and Elizabeth McCall of Brown Foreman. So please come and ask all the questions that you want. And if you're not local, that's fine. Be a remote viewer. It's going to be streaming on all of our major platforms, and we want you to comment and be a part of the show. Now, this episode has Eddie Russell in really, it doesn't need any more explanation than that. Now, we've talked about supporting the show on Patreon before, and maybe you think it's just noise getting the way of your podcast listening, but our Patreon community is really what keeps this going with their support. And honestly, it couldn't be possible without them. And I challenge you, sign up, even at a dollar a month, and you can be a part of the things like our Hangout recordings, get behind the scenes podcast information, uh, and get more experiences of all the things that we're offering. Now with that, enjoy this week's episode. Here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick and this is Above the Char. Last week in Forbes magazine, I named Old Forester Kentucky Straight Rye Whiskey to be America's Best Value Whiskey. That's right, a rye whiskey, not a bourbon, I believe right now is the best value in all of whiskey. Why? It's only $23, but it tastes like something I would spend three times the money on. It's very good, and here are my tasting notes on it. Think vanilla. It enters the nose and tickles the olfactory with caramel coming in just behind. Then there's a burst of a rye muffin baking in the oven. And lastly, hints of herbs are on the nose. For the palate, the buttery mouthfeel starts strong but doesn't entirely coat the palate as flavors put on an exemplary show of balance. The notes of the nose become one of the palate all at the same time with lovely additions of banana nut bread, baking spices, pepper, anise, and a hint of Jolly Rancher watermelon. As it sits on the palate, the rye muffin note comes back, with a brown sugar butter appearing during a very long finish. This is fantastic whiskey. This is also a composite of four-year-old whiskey, but with a couple years in the barrel, I believe it will be even better. So those were the tasting notes that I published last week. And you can imagine the number of emails that I got, and the texts, and the Twitters, and the Facebooks. 
a lot of retailers rushing to the distributors, ordering as much as they could. And I also went straight to the store and bought a case. I did. I bought as much as I could from Liquor Barn here in Louisville, Kentucky. And then someone reached out to me. It was like, what if we don't like rye? What's a great value bourbon? And the pick that I'm going to recommend is not necessarily based on flavor profile, but more on price. This is a, a whiskey that I scored, I think, maybe an 86 or an 87, but it's so inexpensive that you cannot beat the value of it. And that is Evan Williams Bottled and Bond. It is a fantastic whiskey, and you can find it on the shelves here in uh, Louisville uh, between $15 and you know $22. A few years ago, you would find it for less than that. If you're in Louisville, uh, there is also a brand called Heaven Hill Six-Year-Old. It's a green label. It's 90 proof. Uh, It's also in that 85 to 87 point range for me, but it's usually between $9 and $12. Of course, we do recall the Heaven and Hill Bottled and Bond bourbon, which we used to all buy and love, and now it's gone. You can go listen to the episode with Larry Cass to learn more about that one. But there's still a lot of great value in bourbon. And while this rye, I think, is uh, heads and shoulders above all the bourbons on the market right now for a value whiskey, you can still find a lot of great value. But you can also find a lot of stupid pricing. Take a look at some of the small distillers and what they're coming out with. You'll see anything from $75 to $150. Does it warrant the price? I mean, you got to taste it in the money. You know, that's a personal decision. But... There's also a lot of source whiskeys that are in that $45 to $150 range. And it's just not as good as something like Maker's Mark or Woodford Reserve or Old Forester. And right now, there's nothing better for the money than Old Forester straight rye whiskey. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, did you know I started a YouTube channel? Go check it out. I've got a channel called The Curation Desk, where I'm tasting stuff that's good, that's bad, and really awesome. Go to youtube.com and search my name, Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Give 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. 
So head on over to knowsyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny, back here in Lawrenceburg at the Wild Turkey Distillery. And we are, or I should say, I am just sitting with Headmaster Distiller, Eddie Russell here. Before I introduce him, you know, I want to say thank you again for the Campari team for allowing us to come in and record a lot of these podcasts with the family because it's finding out that it's really hard to find these people as they're globetrotting all around the world. Uh, and I think we'll probably talk about that a little bit because this guy's probably wrapped Delta Diamond four times by now. <laughs> and he's probably got a lot of cool stories from that too. So with that, let's go ahead and kick it off. So today, as I mentioned, we have Eddie Russell. You just go head to master distillers? Super just master distiller, yeah. Co-master? Co um, you, you like well, to yeah, co-master distiller. I mean, Jimmy's not so involved in it anymore, but, you know, to me, he's still the man. He's still the guy I go to to ask questions. So, you know, he's definitely the, the grandmaster, I guess you would say. <laughs> well, how often do you really go into him and ask him for questions still? Uh, not, as, not near as much as I used to, but, I mean, if I run into something or, you know, I don't talk too much about things that I'm doing that I don't want him to know about, but just things like, <laughs> you know, I ran into a barrel that was almost black color. It tasted like a cognac or something, and I had other barrels right beside it that seemed pretty normal, and I, I went to him and, you know, just asking questions like that, because even 37 years in, you see things that you haven't seen before, and he's definitely seen everything. Well, so when you when you saw that black barrel, I mean, did you have to go and say, is this actually bourbon or did you fill it with something else or what made this happen? So, yeah, we did run a few tests on it that wound up basically, it was pretty low to start with. So basically sampled it out. <laughs> it became an empty barrel. <laughs> <laughs> Does that happen a lot? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we're going to say on. That's right. While we're on camera, that's at least, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing, you know, we had talked about just going and asking them questions. Like, so besides like just that black barrel, I mean, it, it seems you've, you've really harnessed the craft. Like, you know what you're doing. Um, is there, is there much anymore that you're still learning from him in regards to just random questions or is it kind of like, I've got it from here? Oh, I feel completely comfortable with every part of the job, you know, because I've worked them all and been around it my whole life. But, you know, it's things even like I did the Master's Keep Revival. It's something he'd done years ago. So, you know, go to him and, you know, mention it and ask for any advice. Most of the time he just tells me it's not going to work. Because uh, he thought you always called yeah, you no. Right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, there's still times you go in there. And it, sometimes it's about, you know, people we meet in the business because he has one of the best memories of anybody I've ever seen. You know, where did we meet that guy? What's his name or that lady? You know, so there's things like that. Jimmy spends a lot of time in our visitor center now. 
greeting the guests and signing bottles, which is great for us because no other distillery has that. Uh, so it's cool to have that. Are you looking forward to the day where you could sit there at the distillery and sign bottles? Are you looking to piece on out of here and get some property that has a, a beachfront view? <laughs> uh, maybe not beachfront, but definitely waterfront. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't really know. Uh, you know, Jimmy's always been the guy that says he's never worked a day in his life, and I call BS on that because <laughs> there's times when it becomes a little bit of work, you know, uh, especially paperwork and emails and things. But I, I don't know when that day will come. I always grew up thinking, you know, I was going to retire early. My brother's retired, and we'd go fishing and play golf and do this and that. But, you know, right now I really enjoy what I do, so – I have no clue what it'll be like. You know, I never thought Jimmy would work as long as he has. You know, even though I knew him and I had people say, well, Jimmy will stick around till you're secure, but it really never was about that. He wanted to teach me, but he didn't want to ever leave. I mean, this is what gets him up every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you feel like you have this almost sense of like I'm stuck sometimes to, to feel that like well I can't go right like well if my dad's still here I can't I can't look like the bastard <laughs> child and just just leave no I don't really think that way but like you know talking to Bruce my son and Joanne my niece it's like you know this is a big decision when you decide to go to work for our company because you know we're the faces of the company so it's hard to be the face and then go away and be the face for something else so you know, I do talk to them about that. I just take the lessons I learned. You know, Jimmy was like, you can do it or we can just get somebody else. It didn't matter to him, you know, as far as the marketing end and things like that. But it's a little different for me. I do tell them, you know, what it's like to be in that part of it. Because, you know, I love being around people and I love talking to people about the brand. But traveling is not what most people think it is. You know, you're in an airport or a hotel and... You're on the road all the time. It's it's not as easy as you think. And there's a lot of people that do that every week. So are you a Delta, United? Where's where's your brand loyalty so stand there? My brand loyalty's with Delta. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely a diamond member with Delta. <laughs> so you can't get to heaven without going through Atlanta first. That's right. You know? Atlanta mainly. Yep. If I'm going to New York, I go to Atlanta and fly right back over Kentucky. So uh that's always fun. Sometimes you go to Detroit, but mainly Atlanta. So are you ever sitting in a sky club and somebody's like, is that, is that Eddie Russell? It happens more and more definitely as, as, you know, as my face has been out there a little more. Um, I mean, I've had pilots come back and say, Mr. Russell, I just want to say hi, I love your whiskey. And it's like, oh, thank you. My dad was the type. He got on a plane, didn't matter who was sitting by him. They knew who he was and what he did. Me, I get on the plane, I got my headphones in, my iPad, watching a movie. It's like, you know, I talk for a living, so I just take that time to sort of relax. But you still get that. You still get people that, that notice you and want to say hi to you. And that's that's the part of it Jimmy taught us is anytime somebody wants to talk to you or say hi to you, you talk to them and say hi to them. Now, do you try to play a little bit like undercover boss? Do you, are you wearing wild turkey T-shirts or sweatshirts? You're like, I'm going to try to fit in just like, like a regular uh, Joe around here. Go and I usually do have wild turkey something, but coming home, it's usually hat pulled down over my eyes, T-shirt and shorts. You know, it's like I don't want anybody to know me till I get home. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, are, you are flying a lot. I think last time when we were trying to set this up, you were heading to Australia or yeah. something around there. So – 
yeah, you are flying a ton. Is there is there any destination that's kind of stuck out in the past year? I think since the last last the last time you're on this podcast, it was episode. 76 74 something like that and we're we're well past that 100 episodes later yeah. now so it's been a while so is there any kind of like destinations that have stood out yeah it's been really neat for me for the last few years um you know in the past japan and australia was the countries that we went to because they're our biggest export markets but going to poland warsaw poland going to thailand going to philippines Going to places they they're hungry to hear about bourbon, but to be the first bourbon person there has really been important, you know. So um, those things are really neat. It's way too long plane flights to those places, but it it's really neat. I had three hundred people show up in Thailand to a masterclass, and eighty five percent of them was twenty to thirty five year old, twenty one to thirty five year old bartenders, men and women. So that's really neat. And you're the first one to ever get there, the first actual distiller. Uh, so it's really cool. I'm getting ready to go to Russia and the Ukraine uh, the day after Thanksgiving. Um, and I think that's going to be really neat. Uh, wish they would have not went in the cold months, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe you can get a few days away to go skiing or something. Uh, like the, that. When they get you, they use you. And that's the thing that was hard. Even my wife didn't understand. She would say, well, you're going here and you're eating the fancy restaurants and you're doing this. And I'm like, it's they, work. They it's pick work. me it's... up at 9 a.m. and they drop me off at midnight or one. And the next day they pick me up at 9 a.m. They drop me off at 12 or one. I mean, you go because they only have you for so long. So they want to use you as much as they possibly can use you. Absolutely. And for anybody that's watching this on video, we've got like stink bugs that are flying <laughs> everywhere and they're like hitting us in the face. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I know how that feeling is when you when you have to go somewhere where all you see is uh, you see the tarmac, you see the airport, you see the hotel, you see where you need to go, and then you're right back. It's just a full circle again. Uh, But other than that, I mean, are you getting away to see any kind of fun when you're doing a lot of this traveling? None at all. I mean, hardly ever. Uh, You know, every now and then, if you're staying over the weekend, Sundays is usually a day they don't do anything. So if you have some time, like when I was in Thailand, I got to do a few things on a Sunday, but most of the time, no. Most of the time, they've got you. They want to make sure they're using you uh, all day long, and even in the evening. You, you know, you do consumers, you do trade, you do dinners, you do lunches, you do whatever. But they want to make sure they get your face out there as much as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and let's start talking about a little, little, little whiskey and a little bit of bourbon. Okay. Right? I think that's kind of the whole premise of the show. So I kind of want to look at some of some of the entry proofs, right? Because if we start looking back in the history of it, uh, in 2004, the barrel proof entry increased from 107 to 110. Yep. Uh, 2006, it progressed again and went from 110 to 115. Right. So we're, we're talking of, of a few times when this happened. Are you looking to kind of keep this consistency going forward? Or do you have any ideas of maybe we could, because barrel proof entry at, at the most, you can go at 125 if you really wanted to. Is there any plans for any changes in the future? Or is it just kind of like, well, so Personally, in my opinion, I wouldn't want to go over 115. I think once you get up to 120, 125, you start pulling some stuff out of the wood that you really don't like. Uh, Really, one of the main reasons to do it was to make sure that I had at least 101 proof bourbon in my older whiskey. Um, You know, if you look back before the 60s, you couldn't even put it in the barrel higher than 110. So a lot of people did it at that 103 to 108 proof, you know. 
And then as things changed, uh, one corporation lobbied the government to go to 125, and they did. So most people do that because you can add more water. Uh, but that's not what we like to do. As you see the things I do, I like to do as much barrel strength, as much non-chill filtered stuff that I can possibly do. What I'd love to do is make a few batches of the, at that old 107 just as something special. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely would like to do that. And uh, what most people don't understand, even our company people sometimes they're all for it. When's it ready? And I'm like, well, it'll be six or eight years. Yeah, we <laughs> Ask so, me again another year, yeah. and I'll probably get you the same exact yeah, answer. Exactly. So, you know, one of the things you just brought up, you know, how can you not get 101 proof out of something that goes in at 110? Kind of explain to people how that drops or how you're losing uh, some uh, so, of these proof points. So for us, uh, you know, we're very old-fashioned metal-clad warehouses with hundreds of windows in them. In our warehouses, are seven stories, most of them. And those top floors especially, even the sixth floor and seventh floor, it gets so hot up in there in the summer that the air expands and pushes that whiskey into the wood. And if you could tear a barrel down, you would see what we call a red line. That would be how deep it got into that barrel. Well, when it gets that hot, it gets all the way to the edge of that wood in a white oak membrane because the federal regulation only states oak. Uh, but we all use white oak, and one of the main reasons is because a white oak membrane will actually let a water molecule out, but not an alcohol molecule because it's denser. So up there on the top floor, you're losing water. And if we didn't open the windows, there'd be moisture all over the bottom floor because that moisture eventually gets down there, and it makes the proof go down. So as as we changed our proof was when Jimmy came out with Rare Breed, which was a barrel proof. But I would have to take all the higher floor stuff to get a proof that was higher than our normal proofs. And then it made all my older whiskey below. So as that water seeps in the barrel at the bottom, your proof goes down. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, makers, they, they claim that they roll barrels and they change barrels to try to get this consistency or anything like that. That never thought crossed your mind because, in my opinion, I think it's a lot. It's very, very wasteful when it comes to human resources that it would take. Well, to when I first too. started here, we did quite a bit of rotation. And that's because really all we had was 101, you know. Uh, we didn't have the rare breeds or the Kentucky Spirits or anything like that. It was 80 proof and 101. And so we did. And that's why makers would do that, because they really only have one product, makers. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is trying to keep all the flavors consistent. So that high floor stuff needs to come down the bottom to slow down. The bottom needs to go up the high to speed up. The middle floors, you don't have to move. Uh, I don't think they would rotate all their barrels because it'd be sort of silly rotating off the middle floors. Mm-hmm. But you rotate the top and bottom. We did that when we first came here. But now, with one recipe and one yeast, like Makers, uh, one product, if I didn't have those different floors to give me different flavors, I couldn't have Rare Breed and I couldn't have Russell's and I couldn't have the different the brands that I have with the one recipe. So that's why we don't rotate. So another question to kind of follow along to that. So when you talk about those two, and by the way, I apologize to all the users out there. If you hear trucks going on in the background, there's a reason because we're <laughs> actually outside recording today and there's a, there's a highway that's right next to us. And we were listening earlier and Jimmy told us there's a rock quarry probably about, what, a mile down the road yeah, or something? Yeah, not too far. It's a good limestone rock they're moving around. Oh, and then, There's no shortage of it because there's trucks going back and forth every second. But anyway, 
one of the questions that I kind of asked is, so you have all these, you have the same mash bill that goes in every single one of them. And you kind of talked about different places, the warehouse that you get Russell's versus you get rare breed. Talk about that. So where are, are there particular warehouses? Are there particular levels in each warehouse that you blend for these? Like what, what's your what's yeah, the thought process? It's not the warehouses. We have 29 and we don't decide they're north and south, east or west. We just put them around everywhere. We're very high location right here. So they all age good. It's more the floors. You know, I've been sort of pitching to our company about, you know, they're always wanting something special. And I talk about, I called it seven floors at first. Uh, I would take the bottom two floors, the middle two floors, and the top two floors and put them out to show people how much difference there is in them. Because there's a huge difference. Your bottom floors are very earthy and floral. Your top floors are more spicy and woody and smoky. Uh, what I look for for Russell's is coming out the middle. Because those middle floors, I did experiments years ago where I kept temperature and humidity readings in the top, middle, and bottom. Those top floors could be 120 degrees in the summer and 30 in the winter. The bottom floors stay 65 to 75 year-round just about. Those middle floors are going 80 to 40, so you got the good in and out, not getting too deep, but enough to get your flavors and your colors. So when I'm looking for my most, the best whiskey for me, what I think of as best would be the creamiest, some kind of sweetness, vanilla, caramel, fruits, nuts, anything like that with that nice spice and nice finish that's coming out of the middle. So the Russell's 10 or even the single barrels, you know, I've never, this year I put a few third floors in, and that was the lowest I'd ever been. I put a few sevens in just because people want something different. Uh, but there's definitely a difference. Now, rare breed, traditionally, a lot of it came from the upper floors, so I could get that proof. Because when we were doing 107, if we made a dump, they came out 103 or 4 proof. And that's what Jimmy wanted, because he didn't want to add much water for the 101. Mm -hmm. You know, so I had to go up and get the stuff that was 110 or 11 proof to make that 108, you know, to blend it in with that lower proof that was down on the lower floors. So, therefore, anything that was left over was usually down on the lower floors, so the proof went down on it. So, I mean, is, is 108 your target when it comes to rare breed, or are you trying well, to— Right now, our new batch of rare breeds, 116.8, and that has to do with the six-year-olds in there, went in there at 115, you know, so— uh, it's it's going to go up. I don't see it being too much higher than that. And I was a little leery even at that proof. Uh, I could have went lower, you know, if I'd have went down some floors, but I didn't have the flavor I really wanted. Uh, the 116.8 in rare breed has always amazed me because if we do a tasting somewhere, it never fails. You have four or five people to walk up and say, I can't drink 101. It's just too strong, but I love that rare breed. You know, and it'll mm -hmm. be 10 proof points higher or more, 15 proof points higher. Uh, but it's about picking those barrels. Proof matters, but it doesn't so much when you're picking the right barrels. You can still get those good tastes without getting that huge alcohol taste. Absolutely. So the other thing that you kind of talked about, at least with the rare breed, and I kind of want to pick your brain on this. How many times are you, because you said, it, it didn't taste the way that you were expecting to taste or you wanted to find more vanilla or whatever you were looking for. How many barrels are actually being dumped in a rare breed? And then how many more barrels are you dumping from different places to try to find that particular profile that you're looking for? Well, if you look at 101 or, or 81, uh, that's about 1,500 barrels. And what I do is take barrels from all floors to get that. Um, 
And those you can fix at the end. So like if I'd done 1,500 barrels and it still isn't what exactly what I want because we taste every dump, I can go back and get something to bring that taste in there depending on what floor. Rare Breed or Russell's is around 150 to 200 barrels. So really we have to sort of taste all those barrels to go in that. And I'm only looking up for the Russell's, especially in those middle floors. Rare Breed, I do want to pull a little bit from upper floors because to me, and I know a good friend Fred No said the same thing about the first time he had to pick the barrels for Booker's. You know, I knew 101, I did 81, I did the Russell's, I knew all those, but Rare Breed, Jimmy built. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was not only I wanted to put something out I liked, I had to put something out that he liked right. because that's his brand. So, you know, you dump those barrels and you're tasting almost every single barrel that goes in there to make sure you're getting what he wanted out of that. So another thing that you had talked about were the warehouses. You know, so there's 29 here. And we had talked about in the another recording about how, I think it was Revival or was it Decades? Which other one was came from a brick warehouse? So that was the 17-year-old that came from the brick, yeah. Yeah, so kind of talk about do you do you see a lot of differences of the whiskey that's coming out of the brick warehouse versus any of the other ones? Because we've talked to a few other people that are either building warehouses or they're talking to the Busics, and nobody really knows at this point is concrete, brick, aluminum exterior, how the effect is really having on it at this point. Oh, I think we know. I mean, there's a lot of people that are new to the business that don't understand it, but I think all of us know. Uh, and it was sort of how you wanted to do your project. Uh, the brick warehouses, the 17-year-old was the only time we ever done the brick warehouses. And that's because I needed to rent some. It was the only ones I could find. But a brick warehouse stays cooler and damper. You have concrete floors every two floors. So you don't get the air circulation we get in the metal-clad warehouses. So we think it ages much better. I mean, but everybody's different. Four Roses talks about basically doing one level. Mm-hmm. And the reason they can do that is because they have 10 recipe combinations with their five yeast and two recipes. I have one. If I didn't have this, you know, then I couldn't put out but one product. Mm-hmm. So it's just different for me. So, you know, there was... The brick warehouses I rented were down at the old Taylor distillery back years ago. This would have been 96, 97, spring of 98. Um, it was the only choice I had, but when, you know, I saved barrels from every floor that I was using to sort of track what was happening. Uh, at four years old, it tasted like two years old. At eight years old, it tasted like four years old. Where 12 years, normally for us, it starts going the other way unless I move it down to the lower floors it was still just starting to get good, mm-hmm. you know, because it just took longer. It took longer for it to age. Uh, even like a palletized warehouse like the Scotch people do, those are pretty common in our industry anymore because it's a lot cheaper. Oh, yeah. But it takes extra time to get that aging process, for especially for us, you know. Uh, so it, there is a huge difference. So everything we build is metal clad. So you said you like the brick one, though. I mean, if you had all of a sudden a $5 million investment to go and build new warehouses. And they're like, Eddie, it's your dream. Whatever whatever one you want. I mean, would you go with brick or would you think you'd I'd just go, go with metal, metal clad? clad? Yeah. I like the brick for one thing. Uh, the only problem with the brick was it was 17 years old. I paid taxes on that for 17 years. Right. 
uh, I got 16 gallons out of the average of each barrel, and it started at 53 gallons. Mm-hmm. My proof went in at 107. It came out at 88.2. <laughs> so you're Here, like, you, you, yeah. you can maybe find that on the bottom floors, but you'd never find it from the middle up. Mm-hmm. There, it didn't matter what floor it was on because it was in those brick warehouses. So I'm not saying it's bad for people. I'm not saying one level's bad for people. Just for wild turkey, what we make and what we believe in, we need the seven-story warehouses, six, seven-story warehouses that are metal-clad that have the huge temperature change. So is there anything else that's still aging in brick, or is everything kind of— No, that was the only barrels we've ever done, and Jimmy didn't want me to do that. I definitely got a no on that one, Uh, but it was— you know, Jimmy, I have a choice. I can quit making whiskey or I can rent these warehouses. Because I actually went to Buffalo Trace to some brick warehouses first mm-hmm. for a little while, and they didn't have much room and wound up finding these uh, because that's really all we could find. Uh, and it was great. I mean, it was, you know, different because they were away from here and I had to go check on them. But I don't need to age it 17 years to get that kind of taste, you know. Uh, and even in that, I thought it was a wonderful product. It was very layered. It had a lot of different tastes. But on the very back end of it, I could tell it was old whiskey because it gave it that sort of little bitter finish. And that's what that wood does for you when it gets that old. I think a lot of people really raved about it. They they were saying it's probably, you know, besides, you know, Russell's 98 and 2002, it was one of the better better whiskeys of the year and one of the better ones that wild turkeys come out with when it comes to a limited release. And I don't know if it's because people are snobs for age statements or whatever it is, but I think that a lot of people had a lot of good positive feedback about it. I think that, you know, where the older guys thought six, eight years old was perfect age. And, you know, Jimmy will say he doesn't like it over 12 or 13 years old. Um, but for me, being my first release as a master distiller for a limited time offering, it's the most unique whiskey I ever had. Mm-hmm. I spent 17 years dealing with that whiskey, you know. just Because 16 wasn't enough. Yeah. 18 was too long. <laughs> exactly, you know. It's even like the 1998. You know, I don't really think about the age. I mean, we dumped that, and it sat in a, in a tank for over a year because I knew if I left it in the barrel any longer, it was going to start changing. So really, you know, I learned from Jimmy the day one when I started working here, we were bought by a company and they come in and said, Jimmy, how much does it cost to make a proof gallon of whiskey? Because that's what your whole business is based on. A proof gallon is a gallon of whiskey at 100 proof for 50% alcohol. Jimmy said, I don't know. And they said, well, you're the master distiller, plant manager, human resources. What do you mean you don't know? He said, I don't care. And they said, what do you mean you don't care? He said, all I care about is what it tastes like. Mm-hmm. I can go figure those numbers up for you. Now I have to know exactly now how you, much it costs to prove you know. <laughs> a proof gallon. But that's just sort of the way Jimmy was, and it's the way with our whiskey. It's like even the revival. I learned from when Jimmy did it back in 2000s, we actually basically weren't some good 10-year-old whiskey because we put it in there and didn't go back for a very long time. So when we did this one, I made sure that we tasted it every week. Mm-hmm. You know, and when we got to the point, and it, I tell bartenders this, when they're doing barrel-aged cocktails and they think it's good, sell it because in a few weeks it could go completely the other way. And that's something just to experience you learn, you know, things that I've watched Jimmy do to remember what he did, even asking him about it. So how often do you get that chance to make the gamble, right? Because let's just take those 17-year-old barrels. 
I mean, were you trying at 12, 15, and then it just still wasn't there yet? Or you just said, well, actually, I forgot about these in my Excel spreadsheet. We'll have to go back and find them now. Not really forgot about them, but definitely tasting them and thinking, you know, from 12 to 15 years, it just kept getting better. But there's always that point, just like I said, it had just that little bit of wood bitterness on the back. So another year might have made that even worse, Mm -hmm. you know. I actually brought those barrels back here and finished them off here just to sort of level a few things out, you know. Uh, So it's constant tasting and, you know, you do move a little bit, not a lot, but figuring out when it's time. So you had talked a little bit earlier about, you actually talked about Wild Turkey 81. Do you see 81 still being pretty prevalent in the marketplace? Because, you know, at least the Whiskey Geek community Nobody touches 81, right? It's right. either it's either 101, Rare Breed, Russells, yeah. those kind of things. So where where does 81 really fit, in your opinion, to the market? Well, I think that's what my goal or my ambition for wild turkeys always been. You know, I grew up with Jimmy and Booker and those guys, and Booker was famous for saying, here's Jim Beam, if you don't like it, send it back, I'll drink it. You know, and Jimmy felt the same way. 101 was good enough. You didn't need anything else. And our whole industry only looked at a very small percentage of America. It was mainly 50 and older gentlemen and mainly Southern gentlemen. They all promoted to those same people, talked to those same people. Where when I came in and started seeing some of these young bartenders making the classic drinks again, I started talking to them. I mean, I, I got to know some of them because of things that probably made a mistake, like with 81 Rye. There was a Facebook page started, Bring Back 101 Rye. Eddie screwed up, you know, basically. But it was learning, you know. And when I got to talking to those guys, a lot of them talked about now they make the drinks with the 101, but back then they really did. Most people drank 101 neat or on ice. Uh, And they talked to me about the four-year-old 80 proofs. They said, when we make a drink, all those great flavors y'all have in bourbon go away. So I thought, well, let me make one that's more about what we're about, which was six-and-a-half-year-old bourbon. So you had more of those grape flavors in there that stood up to that drink. So that's how it sort of first started. Then I also thought about those new consumers that's grown our industry. That's what's really made it what it is today. I love Jimmy. He'll say, well, it's the export market. And the export market is big, but what America is your main market, and what's changed America is those young bartenders. So to have that young 25-year-old male or female come in and have a Manhattan and never drink brown spirits, here's an 81 proof that has great taste, but it's not quite as aggressive as 101. So for me, I'm constantly looking at the markets and looking at who's drinking and looking at something that could fit with my one recipe to give a different taste. Because not everybody's going to like 101. Not everybody's going to like Rare Breed, you know, so... Not everyone's going to like Russell's, so I keep doing different things with that recipe to bring it out. I mean, how many more derivatives do you think that you can do? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. 
Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. I mean, how many more derivatives do you think that you can do? Because I, I think you're, you're, you're almost... I would, I would think you're almost like maxed out at this point. <laughs> I am. I mean, even the long branch was as far away as I've went from the DNA of wild turkey, but it was a very complicated process to get to that point. So, yeah, that's what I keep talking to her. We want to have innovation meetings, and, you know, innovations are sort of a bad word for me in a lot of places also because there's so much innovation. How do you keep up with it? Uh, I can't innovate too much because I only have one recipe. It's like I said, I can't get just put out 14, 15-year-old whiskey and say this is special. You know, I got to have something that's different, something that's unique. Uh, so, yeah, I'm as far as permanent products, unless we do a different recipe, unless we use a different type barrel or different grains, it's hard for me to, to do much more. So you, you really harped on this one recipe a lot, but it seems like you've got this, like, slight bit of resentment. I mean, is there is there a, a, a day that you want to find to bring in a second recipe? I mean, of course you've got the rye, but like, is there is there another mash bill that you're always I wouldn't mind of? experimenting a little bit. It's just, you know, for me, I've learned what wild turkey's about and what Jimmy's built it about. I'll go as far as I can. I don't want to change what he's built. Uh, but yeah, it would be fun to try a few things different. Um, but as Jimmy's always taught me, if you change in six years from now when you're ready to ball and that's no good, it's six more years before you get back to what you originally was and then you've lost all your people. So you have to be very careful how you do those things. Some brands have built themselves on doing experimental stuff, you know, and that's cool. It's just not what wild turkey's about. Absolutely. So the other thing, Russell's Reserve, I want to touch on that a little bit because this is it's kind of your baby, right? Yeah. Is it right? So one of the things that all the whiskey geeks love, they love to be able to come here and pick a barrel because you're usually the one here helping yeah. pick out Russell's Reserve uh, with people. I've done it with you before. I've actually done it with Jimmy before. Now, one of the things that I think people are really looking for is they're like, I want a barrel strength Russell's. Yeah. And is there a day that will ever come when we're going to see something like this? Well, uh, I'm constantly pushing for things like that. Um, you know, the... The 2002 was the first barrel-proof Russells we ever put out. And people taste them barrel-strength right out of the warehouse. And 
I had our people convinced to do it and a few other things, but barrel-proof Russells was definitely one. You know, they're always cautious. Well, we won't get as many bottles, and it's like, that's fine. You can charge extra. They'll be happy to pay it. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They just want something unique, you know, that's different. And um, our company moved our corporate offices from San Francisco to New York, so I lost a lot of those people in that move. So now it's new people that I'm having to go to, and that's different from when I was growing up in this industry. If you had a brand manager, he was around forever. Mm-hmm. He was like Jimmy. He had that job, and he wasn't leaving it. Uh, now it changes constantly. I've had six or seven brand managers in the last 15 years. So each time you have one, they have their own thoughts, and a lot of them weren't in this industry and don't know this history. So you have to sort of educate them on things like that. And I preach to our company all the time, any new employee we hire should come here. Yeah, just to kind of see it firsthand. Because you spend a day with us here, and then you understand what Wild Turkey's about. You know, I'm very lucky, and this is what I tell them all the time. I'm here with the union employees working. I'm working in the steerie. I'm working in ball. I'm working everywhere. But I'm on the road with the consumers. I'm on the road with the retailers. I'm on the road with the distributors. So I hear everything from everybody. I'm with our corporate people in Milan. I'm with our people in New York. So I get to see everybody. Where most people don't, they're sort of focused on one group. So for me, I feel like I understand what the consumer, what the bartender's looking for and those things like that. So for me, it should be, sure, if that's what you think, Eddie, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so you look at that as like that could be a good, healthy change for the brand because I know – picking these barrels. And I know a lot of people, they love the Russell's Reserve brand in itself because it you do get this non-chill filtered, great, great product out of it. But it's always it's always that even when we gone and picked barrels at like Elijah Craig, you need to, and they you do it barrel proof and then you're like, well, all right, let's add some water and yeah. we'll kill this thing, right? But yours is a little bit different because you have a lower entry proof, right. right? So you're gonna, if you're adding water, you might be adjusting it by two to, two to five proof points, yeah. right? So it's not gonna be too much, but I kind of get a sense from you that it would be a, a healthy benefit to the brand. It is. I mean, their concerns are you can't pre-order the labels. I started the Russell Single Barrel, I think, five years ago. Uh, and when I started it, the Russell's brand is sort of mine, so I feel like I can adjust and move around. Kentucky Spirit and Rare Breed, those are Jimmy, so I'm not messing with those. Uh, but the Russell's is the brand. So when I started it, for me, I wanted it to be barrel strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were worried about, well, we'll have to write the proof on every bottle. I said, okay. I said, let's do 110 because I'd have to search for barrels that were 111 or 112 because they went in at 107 just to get the whiskey. Uh, now with the higher entry proof, you do get some of their 16, 117, even 120 proof. So it does come down a little. The non-chill filtering was the same way. We never chill filtered anything here except our 80 proof. And then corporate quality control says, oh, convince the company. you got a chill filter. Everybody else is. But you see everything I do, I go back to that non-chill filter because you're actually tasting stuff that, that I want in there. The mouthfeel, the creaminess is those fuse oils and stuff that are in there, the aldehydes, the esters, the proteins that I want to keep in there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, 
I mean, I, I would think most of the, the whiskey community would be like, yeah, sure, thumbs up. There's no reason that we shouldn't have it because it is a it's a staple brand that everybody loves, especially when it comes to people that go out and pick barrels themselves, yeah. right? And you, I mean, like I said, you're here usually picking barrels too. Do you find that as one of the most amusing jobs of, of your trade now is actually doing that? Well, I love it. Uh, I love it for several different reasons. I mean, I love the people coming in and I take them in the warehouse and you've been on it. Uh, you know, we taste barrels, but I tell stories about the past. I talk about the other distillers and, you know, I just, I try to make it very entertaining and something they really love. So it is a great part. And it also sort of is good because Jimmy never really liked single barrels. You know, back in the day when Elmer came out with plantains, Booker and Jimmy's like, I'm not doing that. You can't be consistent. And Booker never did. Mm -hmm. You know, Freddie came out with a Knob Creek single barrel, but Booker wouldn't do it. And then Jimmy, seven, eight years later, like, I'm not letting Elmer outdo me. He comes out with Kentucky Spirit, and I always tell people it was basically 101 with a tuxedo on. Yeah. Because it still had that 101-type flavor and everything. It was just some of his better barrels. For me, when I do the Russells, I'm looking for different barrels. I'm looking for those oddball barrels. I'll have some that taste like Russell's, some that you think about wild turkey, but I'm looking for those ones that are fruity, that are floral, that are so many different flavors. So for me, that's the fun part is to take barrels that we're putting a building on the same day out of the same tank, and 10 years later they come out and they taste totally different. Right. I love that about it. I think that's probably one of the unique things too, but it's, Picking a barrel, and I'm sure. I mean, you've tasted everything that's you're gonna be in the lineup. Yeah. Do you do you help gravitate people towards? Be like, I think you should you should probably choose this one over here. Oh, instead. I do with some, <laughs> some I don't, but I do with some because I have a lot of people that I know really well, and some go for different tastes, some go for the same, and I'll run them through some barrels I know they're not gonna like, and then say, well, there's one more over here, and they always get mad because why didn't you let me have that one first? But well, that's the fun part. I want them to see what other ones taste like, also. You know, for me, I think our Russell's probably has more variance than any other single barrel program. I think a lot of the distilleries try to go to keep a little more consistent where I'm in there trying to find barrels that, I mean, I want somebody to say, I've never tasted a wild turkey that tastes like this. Then I know I've found barrels that are really unique that they can go to their store and talk about. Uh, so that's what I sort of do. And, you know, I'm not limiting them to three or four barrels, and they all came from the same rail and all taste similar. I'm getting barrels from four or five different warehouses from different floors that all taste different. So that's what I love about the program. And I think the program is unique in that aspect as well as you just hit the nail on the head that some places you go and they'll have three or four barrels lined up. Every time I've come into here, it's like, well, here's 12. Yeah. Start. Go ahead. As long as you act right, I'll let you taste as many as you want. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've also heard of like sometimes it'll happen where somebody actually picks a, a Russell's Reserve barrel and then all of a sudden they realize it doesn't meet a, a proof point and it has to be bottled as Kentucky Spirit. Have, yeah, have it's happened before? a few times. Yeah. Because yeah. like I said, when I first did this, you know, I'd have to search for barrels to be at least 110.5 because you lose half the proof just filtering, even non-chill filtering. Um, and there was times I'd bring them over here on that first floor and they'd set for a while and all of a sudden it's below 110. And then when they we proof it, you know, because I don't keep a proofing thing over there, so I don't know exactly what the proof is. All I know is the original sampling proof. So whatever warehouse it was in, we sampled it from that warehouse. And then you bring it over here today and it's down on that bottom floor and it's getting a little moisture, the proof goes down. I, that's happened a few times. Yeah, well... 
you'll get over it, right? Yeah. And it's just another bottle of whiskey, right? <laughs> so let's go ahead. We'll kind of start wrapping this up a little bit. And I want to hear some, because you know, you guys are rubbing shoulders with a lot of celebrities nowadays, it seems like. And so Matthew McConaughey has become a, a pretty integral partner into this. Kind of talk about what that, I guess you could scenario has been like of, of how he's either made an effect on the family. Uh, did you or did Jimmy have any kind of hesitation about this? Like what was, what was your, your, your mindset going into it? Well, you know, when they told me that uh, they'd talked to Matthew and he was going to come out and visit, uh, I think Bruce teases me about this and tells this story a lot. But I just think it's the way I was brought up that everybody's the same no matter who you are. He came in and he had an agent, he had a PR person. There was five or six people with him. Never met the man, liked his some of his movies and I was in the restroom when he got there, and Jimmy and Bruce had already met him, and I walked in, and they'd sort of told that I would sort of lead the tour and show him around and everything, and I walked in, and I said, Hi, I'm Eddie. He says, I'm Matthew. Or he said, I'm Matthew, and I said, I'm Eddie, and I guess I didn't act excited enough, and he said, McConaughey, and I said, Russell. <laughs> and Bruce says, Dad, I can't believe you did that, but this, I think that really set the tone for us, though. Yeah. Honestly, and I told this, and I sort of used it as a joke. Uh, we were down in Austin. He has a big charity event. We went down there the first year he was with us, and uh, they had Jimmy and him standing behind a bar, and I was sort of emceeing with a bunch of bartenders and distributors. And some young lady says, well, what is? what do y'all think about Matthew? And I said, I like him a lot. He's a great family man. His wife and kids go with him most places. I mean, he's artistic. He's a little bit different uh, in that respect. But I said, now, Jimmy didn't like him at all. And Matthew's eyebrows sort of raised. And she looked at me and said, well, you mean? I said, well, Jimmy had always been the only sex symbol we ever had. And now he's got competition. <laughs> and everybody cracks up laughing. But me, I look over my dad, and he's sitting there shaking his head. <laughs> so I think it was a little bit different for him because he had always been the only face of wild turkey. And for them to bring a celebrity in, you know. And even when we did the Long Branch, I, for two years we were emailing, calling, and, you know, I've been to a lot of places with him to kick off the Long Branch. Got to know him really well. It was, you still, your marketing's like, well, we're going to say Matthew made this bourbon. I'm like, no, we're not going to say Matthew made this bourbon. Matthew's not making anything. Matthew's using his taste buds. And he really understood that. But some marketing wanted to act like, which is not what we're about at Wild Turkey. But I've got along with him really well. It took a while to figure him out. Uh, I got emails from him that start out McConaughey here, and it could be a page, and there's no capital letters or periods. And he talks about tenor and bass and virtuoso. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, so I had to get a hold of him and say, when you say tenor, what do you mean? Because he didn't speak my language, and I didn't speak musical language. So it was just getting used to each other. Now it's it's very easy to get, you know, to hang around him. And, you know, he, he was a little surprising at first, but I think he was a little intimidated by... He didn't know this industry. Mm -hmm. You know, when we first went out in the market together and kicked off Long Branch, a lot of times he was hesitant to start talking until I started talking. Now he's figured out, you know, let's just talk about the process. And that's what it was about. Well, what was the process? Well, the process was me and him sitting down talking over the phone about 
you know, he kept saying, I want to make a bourbon that I think's the best. And, and you, I, you say, we already have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I couldn't figure out because he liked everything we let him taste just about. You know, I had five or six things I was working on, and most of them never came to fruition. But I let him taste it and said, do you like any of these? And he said, not what I'm looking for. So then it was, well, if it's going to be a partnership, I have to sort of figure out how to tie in Texas and Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So he talked about roads and rivers and all these different things. And I'm like, no, when I think of Texas, I think of two things. If you're a Texan, everything's bigger in Texas. You know, that's what they say. But really, I think about the brisket. Yeah. The smoked brisket Love with the mesquite brisket. that gives it a little smoke, a little citrus, and it's native to Texas. So then it was a process. I've got a great team, Shaylin and Norm here, that work with me, and they do all the hard work. I just tell the barrels to get, and then they set all the samples up. And uh, we took the mesquite char, and what I do is I basically put it down in a container of whiskey. So it's just a stainless steel with hose in it, and I recirculate it through there. And when we did it with just the mesquite, it was like a peated scotch. It was really smoky. And my idea was I wanted to make sure this was a straight bourbon whiskey, and you can't do too much to that. Mm -hmm. So sent samples. I probably sent between 40 and 50 samples to Matthew over the two years, uh, and we we didn't like it. So we sat down, us three, and talked about it, and we said, what's bourbon about? It's about American white oak. So we thought, well, we'll put some American white oak char in that basket. We did that. It still wasn't right. And then we sat down and said, well, let's separate. So we did a day with the mesquite charcoal, pulled that basket out, same whiskey, put the white oak charcoal in for a day. So it's a two-day process. Mm -hmm. Still wasn't right. So we reversed it. Uh, A lot of people used to charcoal filter back in the day, but we never have here. So it was brand new to me. It's just something you got to fool with. And uh, we did the American white oak, and it sort of took some of the top notes, a little more of the stringency out of it, but it also got it ready for that mesquite to come in there and add that citrus and hence the smoke without too much. So one day of American white oak in that tank recirculating, pull that basket out one day of mesquite. And we were sitting in the lab, and we're like, this is almost it, but it, it just wasn't completely what I was looking for. We sent the samples off, and this one Matthew sent back. He said, uh, can you throw a couple little cane sugar and a couple cinnamon sticks in there? <laughs> and I'm like, no, Jimmy would kill us both, yeah. you know. <laughs> so what I did, I was using six-year-old bourbon, and I went to eight-year-old bourbon. And even though, you know, Jimmy doesn't think that way sometimes, anytime I can throw a tribute out to Jimmy, which he's always been known for eight-year-old 101 bourbon. So it made it even more special. But it brought that sweetness, basically, that Matthew was looking for. Uh, and then... You know, those we sent off, and I he just found out. We kicked this off up in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, and I I don't, when I talk, I never know what I'm saying, you know, so sometimes things are, you know, I'll say things, and that last batch, we actually sent some old samples with the new samples. Before, it was just different proofs and variations of that same sample. And he looked at me like, you did? And I said, yeah, I wanted to see if you really knew what you were doing. Yeah. You know. Three-way blind. Yeah. that's And that's how we do things here. So I did that with him. And him and his wife both blindly picked the same one that we liked. So we knew we had it. That's fantastic. So that actually kind of, you know, you had mentioned eight-year. And that kind of sparked something with me because there's a lot of people out there that love old dusty turkey and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And now that 
you know, 29 warehouses. It's not like production's slowing down anytime soon. Is there, do you, do you look at it as a potential goal of yours to one day bring back the, uh, that eight on the bottle once again for your, your one-on-ones? You know, I wouldn't mind, and I, I preach this a lot to our people, is I wouldn't mind doing small batches of 107-proof small batches of eight-year-old stated whiskey. Uh, the thing about it, a lot of people do it to go younger. You know, for us, it, for me, what Jimmy's taught me, it's a lot harder to do a single age and make it be consistent. You know, so like right this year, uh, my 101 has seven, eight, and nine-and-a-half-year-old bourbon in it, and that's our standard product. Most of them are four years old. Mm-hmm. Some years it just has seven and eight. Some years I might put a little six. So it changes constantly. If I was just doing eight, it'd be like my Russell's. This year, Russell's has some 13-year-old in it. I'd much rather say 13-year-old bourbon, but eventually it'll be back to 10 years old, you know? So it's a little harder to do that. So I wouldn't mind doing it in small batches. I don't think I could do it with all 101 and still be consistent like we are today. Absolutely. So we're going to go ahead. We're going to end it with that. But, you know, there's a way that people can follow you because you've gotten a little big on social media lately. (laughs) Like you've been been pulling up the phone, taking some pictures, posting on Instagram. Go ahead and tell people where they can follow you. Uh, 34 years master on Instagram. Uh, I don't do much on Twitter, but I do like doing Instagram. Uh, you know, for us, we're learning. Uh, we actually, when we hired Matthew, he was really going to do three commercials for us and wound up only doing two because, you know, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, the social media spots, even Reddit, you can get and reach so many more people. The podcasts we're doing, these become have become very common to do these podcasts. Five years ago, we didn't do any. Absolutely. You know, so yeah. the people we're reaching, I, you, we, my son Bruce and my other son, neither one of them have a TV. Yeah. You know, they, if they're watching something, they're watching it on their computer. You know, if they have a TV, it's so they can play Xbox. But they're not using it like we do. So it's a different world. So you need to be in that social circle and doing that. And and I like doing it. I like to show people what's going on as I'm out around and traveling around and show them what we're doing, show them what I'm out there doing. So it's fun to do. Absolutely. And so you you took you choose a 34 year master. I mean, you got to keep changing every single well, year now? No, or did you, that's did you what everybody says. I need to update that to 37 years. And I'm like, no, that 34 years was just perfect. It was a special year, right? Yeah, it sure was. <laughs> well, good deal. So make sure you follow Eddie on Instagram and make sure if you get a chance, come to Wild Turkey, choose a Barrel Russell's Reserve. Uh, tell him Kenny from Burp Pursuit, this is where you heard it and he'll go pull some other special barrels out for you. That's right. right. <laughs> so make sure you follow him, follow us as well. Bourbon Pursuit on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you like the show, you like what you hear, you want to support us, keep this going, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. And with that, I will sign off and say we'll see everybody next week. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.